helping disciple makers ignite a movement locally and globally. This is the Disciple First Podcast. Now, here's your host, Craig Etheridge. Welcome to the Disciple First Podcast. It's a podcast by disciple makers and for disciple makers. And today we're going to bring to you a message by Robbie Gallaty that he gave at the Atlanta Flashpoint Conference. Robbie is a senior pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. He was radically saved out of, out of a life of drug addiction in November 12, 2002. In 2008, he founded Replicate Ministries to equip and educate and empower believers to make disciples who make disciples. He's the author of multiple books. And in this message, Robbie really unpacks what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is the Jewish Hebraic background of that, and how did those early disciples hear that invitation when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Buckle your seatbelt, you're going to really like this one. Now listen to Robbie Gallaty. I'm excited to be at this conference with you. Uh, I've appreciated uh, the ministry of, of Craig Etheridge and uh, Disciple First and all that he's doing. Uh, I remember meeting Craig for the very first time at a gathering of discipleship pastors and ministers, and we happened to sit next to each other, and we quickly realized that we had so much in common and uh, quickly became fast friends, and I'm so thankful for Craig and his ministry. Uh, thankful for Bill Hall, who's here. Uh, how many people never heard Bill Hall before? Okay, you're in for a treat. Uh, Bill, I, I was at Lifeway in Glorieta, New Mexico, and I was a new believer, and I was walking through the bookstore at Lifeway. I, I knew about discipleship, never heard anybody talk about it, and I found the disciple-making pastor in Lifeway. And uh, I tell Bill, although I didn't meet Bill until four, three, four years later, uh, he discipled me through his books as he has many of us, right? So Bill's a friend and a mentor. Uh, and then Ken Adams. Uh, I can't tell you, I used to pastor in Chattanooga. I can't tell you how many people said to me, you have got to meet Ken Adams. It's like when you speak, Ken speaking. And uh, he heard that and I heard that. And when we met each other. It was like old college friends and, uh, and college buddies. So Ken, thank you for hosting this. It's a joy to be here uh, to speak to you. Uh, you you're, you're here with uh, my discipleship heroes and many of our heroes as well, right? And so you're going to be well served uh, by Glenn and David, Dean and Debbie. You have a host of disciple makers here for you. Uh, the topic they've given me is how do we prove our love for others uh, through uh, relationships disciple-making, and, and I want to just submit to you where I want to go before we start. Uh, I, I want us to understand that we prove our love for others and the world through intentional investing in people. Amen? Jesus said, if you love me, uh, you, you'll be my disciples if you love me, right? And people are going to see that. If you follow my commandments, if you follow after me, well, the closest way to be, to Jesus, be with Jesus is to follow what Jesus commanded us to do, and the thing Jesus commanded us to do is to make disciples, right? And so that's what I want to talk about today. The title is this, if you're taking notes. Desperate times call for disciple-making measures. Desperate times call for disciple-making measures. It doesn't take much for us to realize we live in a world today that is capitulating right before our eyes, amen? Amen. We live in a world today that is rewriting 4,500 years of biblical history and 2,000 years of Christian history to redefine what a marriage is. 
We live in a day and age today where the same government is forcing taxpayers to support the murder of unborn babies and the purchasing of recycled body parts. That's the day and age we live. The same government is making deals with Iran against Israel, and little do they know that the time clock to the end and the return of Christ is based upon Israel, right? Now, we know that because we're in the church, right? But they don't know that. The same day and age we live in is rewriting the, 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 the high ups, the liberal leaders of our day. They're rewriting the textbooks of curriculum being taught to our children to show them new ways for gender, new, new avenues for marriage, new ideas about abortion and evolution and every other thing to confuse and distort. John Dickerson wrote a book recently. I took my staff there. I want to commend the book to you, although I want to tell you it's hard to read. The first six chapters are very hard to read. The title of the book is this, The Great Evangelical Recession. Anybody heard of this book before? The Great Evangelical Recession. Here's the, here's the tagline. You'll figure it out. Six factors that will crash the American church and how to prepare. Notice he doesn't say how to avoid them. He said we're on a slippery slope for the inevitable. Here's what the first six chapters are telling us. That we have six factors that have stacked themselves against us in a sense that may crash the American church. Here's what he says, I quote. The decline of evangelical Christianity is not just that we're failing at evangelism or just that we're failing at keeping our kids in church, or just that we will lose 70% of our funding over the next 30 years. It's all these factors and more combined and gaining speed simultaneously. Josh McDowell recently reported that out of evangelical teenagers, 69% who went to church will walk away from the church after high school and never come back. Seven out of ten. Ken Ham, with Answers in Genesis, believes that number is 80%. Eight out of ten middle school and high school children in our churches will walk away from church never to come back. Uh, Lifeway Research reported recently that 70% of the Christian church attendees of the millennial generation will leave the church by the age of 23. Someone said to me years ago, Robbie, God either needs to revive us he needs to rapture us, or he needs to repent for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know God's not going to repent, right? So I'm praying for revival or rapture, right? And I want to show you something interesting. John Dickerson, after those six chapters on the inevitable factors that are going to crash the church, he finishes the last six chapters by ringing the bell and speaking one way to end the dilemma we're in. Here's what he says. Every chapter, he says, here's the answer. Here's the answer for the financial crisis. Here's the answer for the gender issue. Here's the answer for the marriage crisis. Here's the answer for our kids walking away from church. Guess what the answer is? You got it. Disciple-making. Discipleship. Now, the beautiful thing about discipleship is this. Discipleship can be done by any man or woman with any background, any cultural upbringing, any socioeconomic background, any maturity level. And I really believe that's why disciple-making, a return to it, will bring about the reformation of the 21st century. Why? Because anybody can do it. As Bill Hall always says, disciple-making is the answer to every problem in the church, right? Do you believe that? Let me try that again. That's the audience participation part. Try that again. Do you believe that? Amen. And so what I want to do today is I want to show you a process 
that Jesus Christ gave us for proving our love to others by investing our life in others, and I want to give you that outline, and then I want to end by motivating you to see that everybody in this room can be about the great commission of Jesus Christ, right? And I want us to leave knowing that it's of the utmost importance for us to make Jesus' final words our first work, right? Final words uh, our first work. Mark chapter 1, if you're there, you can turn if you have a Bible. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and following, and when you get there, you can say word. We get excited about studying the word of God. Why? Because we believe it's the word that changes our lives. Amen? Uh, not cool stories, not funny illustrations, uh, although you may hear those from time to time. It's the word. And so we want to get in the word until the word gets into us. So when you're at Mark chapter 1, say word. word. Say it like you mean it. Word. <laughs> Just lets me know if you're awake in the, in the back. Verse 14, the word of the Lord. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As he was passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Or your version may say, I will make you fish for what? Men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat, mending their nets. Immediately, he called them, and he left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The, the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we pray that you would spark a revival. This would be the flashpoint in our lives to go back and make the main thing the main thing, and that is to make disciples. And that uh, you would spark a revival in churches around this country, that, that people would stand up and take note and say there's something different about this church, there's something different about this ministry. And the answer would be, it's Jesus. Jesus has got a, gotten a hold of our hearts, and therefore we are serious about what he's commanded us. Jesus, you be the teacher today. And we'll be the student. We pull up a seat at your, your table. You instruct us to be more like you. We ask it in your name. And everyone said, amen. I, I want to divide this section into two different categories. And the first one is this. I want to talk to you about the participants that Jesus called. H have you ever stopped to notice the caliber of men that Jesus chose to follow him? Uh, let's just take them, for example, in Mark chapter 1. Uh, you have Peter. Peter is much like us in the fact that he had a foot-shaped mouth. Anybody there before? <laughs> he always said the wrong thing at the wrong time, uh, at the wrong place. And uh, the thing about Peter is he'll go on to deny Jesus, but Jesus will restore him, John chapter 21, on the Sea of Galilee. Peter's brother is Andrew. Andrew doesn't talk much in the Bible, and the reason he doesn't talk much is you wouldn't be able to either with your older brother as Peter. He probably couldn't get a word in edgewise, right? He, he didn't talk much, but he knew exactly who Jesus was, and he knew exactly what Jesus could do. And he was constantly bringing people to Jesus, right? Then we have James. James is the brother of John. He is the heir of a lucrative fishing enterprise. You have to understand, fishing in the first century was very lucrative, very productive career. 
And so he is the brother of John. They are about to inherit this fishing seafood business from their father Zebedee. James will go on to be the first martyr of the Christian faith. John, his brother, is the one whom Jesus loved. I don't think John's being prideful when he says that. It's just common knowledge. Everyone knew John was the closest to Jesus. John will go on to write more of the New Testament epistles than any of the other 12 that followed Jesus when he was on the earth. One other thing you'll notice about these guys, and, and another thing that's interesting, is they all had the same profession. What did they do? They were fishermen, right? And I don't think that's by accident. See, Jesus chose men for particular reasons to prove points to us today. I really believe that. Here's the first thing I want you to see about these men. All of them, all the ones he chose, were blue-collar workers. You ever thought about that? Peter, James, John, Andrew were all fishermen. Simon the Zealot was a card-carrying political activist. Matthew was a government employee, right? Uh, Thomas could have been a lawyer because he was always questioning Jesus at every turn of the event. Not only uh, were they blue-collar workers, they were also men who were untrained and uneducated. Write that down. They had no formal education. Jesus didn't go to the theological institutions of Galilee or, or, or of Jericho uh, or even of Jerusalem, even better. Jesus bypassed that and went to the sea. Go with me to Acts chapter 4. I want to show you an interesting insight about the men who followed Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When you're there, you can say word. Peter and John are brought into the courtyard of the religious leaders, and they're questioning them about this man named Jesus they continue to talk about. And they notice something about these men. Notice verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they had been with who? Jesus. Let me just give you a side note here. Isn't it amazing that these men show us what the power of God can do in a man or woman's life, right? You can have all the theological education in the world and you don't have Jesus and you really have nothing. But you can have no theological education. You can have no degrees on the wall. You can have no formal training and have Jesus and you have everything, right? I don't know about you. I don't know what it was. I've thought about this passage. I don't know what it was that they could put a finger on and say, you know what? These men have been with Jesus, but I want that to be said about me. Don't you? Like, I want to walk into a place. I want, to, I want to invest my life in people where people say, I don't know what it is about Robbie. I don't know what it is about Bill or, or Craig or, or, or Ken, but I know one thing about these men. I know one thing about this sister. She's been with Jesus. That's what they said about these men. Thirdly, I want to submit to you that these men were young men. Now, what I'm about to tell you may cause you to pause for just a moment, and it did for me, to be honest, when I first studied this. Uh, I started writing years ago a book called Rediscovering Discipleship, where I kind of chart historically discipleship through the ages. I uncover people who normally are not known for making disciples. Augustine, Richard Baxter, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Thomas Cranmer. Uh, and, and others, but I went back to Jesus and I started to study about the apostles and I thought what was it like to follow Jesus and how old were these guys and I came to the realization that I believe all of them were teenagers except Peter. Peter would have been in his 20s. Now I know what you're saying. I, I don't know if I've ever heard this before or even believed that. Let me give you seven reasons why I think these guys could have been teenagers. Here's the first one. Write it down. 
The first one was the title that Jesus used to talk to them. Jesus uses two words in, in the Greek. Uh, mikron, which means little ones, and technion, which means children. I'll give you the references. The first one, little ones, is found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 41, when Jesus says, let these little ones come to me. Now, he's not talking about kids. He's talking about his disciples. I don't know about you, but nobody refers to me as a little one <laughs> for a number of reasons. But anyway, uh, no, normally, or even little children, as we see in John chapter 13, when Jesus talked to his disciples in verse 33. So the title Jesus uses is a term of endearment. It's a term that shows that these are followers of him. Probably not the most convincing, but it's one to consider. Secondly, the training, not only the title, but the training. In the Mishnah, which was written years after Jesus passed, the Mishnah is a collection of oral tradition that was going around and circulating during the time of Jesus. The Mishnah says in a vote five, you can go look it up, the process by which a boy goes from boyhood to manhood. And here's what the Mishnah says, a vote five. At the age of five, every boy enrolls into schooling. At the age of 10, to study the Torah. At the age of 10, they study the oral law. At the age of 13, they become a man, which we know as the bar mitzvah, right? Same thing. Uh, at the age of 15, they learn a family trade. At the age of 18, watch this, they are to be married by the age of 18. And by the age of 30, they are supposed to start a rabbinical ministry and start to invest in people if they want to at that time. It's highly unlikely that Jesus would have asked men to leave their professions in their late 20s, early 30s to be against the cultural norms of the day to follow a broke, traveling, penniless rabbi. We have no reason to believe Jesus bucked the cultural norms of the day. So we have the title, then we have the training. Number three, marital status. Marital status. It was customary, as I just mentioned, for Jewish boys to get married at or before the age of 18. Now, this was an arranged marriage by the parents, but it was a marriage, nonetheless, where the parents would find a suitable mate for the son. The only person we know about in the entire Gospels who followed Jesus who was married was one. Who was it? It's Peter. Matthew chapter 8, uh, we know about that because of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We have no reason to believe that Jesus called bachelors to follow him in the first century, which would have been frowned upon by the Jewish culture. Number four, my favorite, the temple tax. Write it down, the temple tax. In the Old Testament, according to Exodus 30, every male over the age of 20 had to pay a temple tax. The temple tax we know in the New Testament is called the double drachma tax. It's a tax that everyone had to pay. It was not an option. It was mandatory. Turn with me to Matthew 17. I want to show you the tax real quick. Matthew 17, 24. When you're there, you can say word. Some of the religious leaders come to Jesus and Peter and ask them about how they pay taxes. Notice what happens. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the double drachma tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the double drachma tax? Y yes, he said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? Who do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes from? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we don't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, 
and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Notice this. Take it and give it to them for me and the rest of the disciples. Is that what it says? No. It says, take it to them for me and for who? For you. Why is Jesus and Peter the only one paying taxes? I want to submit to you, Peter's the only one over 20. Okay, let me give you number five. Not convinced yet. Traveling. It would have been highly unlikely for men, as I, as I alluded to earlier, to leave their professions and travel with Jesus in their 30s. It would have been more likely for men 15, 16, 17 years old to follow Jesus along the way. It would have been very difficult to leave family, friends, and profession to follow Jesus. Number six, longevity. Longevity. Other than the men who are martyred, John lives late into the first century. In fact, he lives to the end of the first century. By John living to the end of the first century, you know this from the dating of Revelation in the end of the first century, we can assume that he was young when he came to Jesus, another instance. Uh, one that's probably the most comical of all is immaturity. <laughs> immaturity, right? I mean, you have to be awestruck by these men that Jesus called. They are constantly debating over simple truths of theology. They are unaware that a devil is among them, Judas, right? They are constantly wanting to call down fire from heaven against people who are against them, right? And finally, I think the trump card, no one who's in their late 20s or 30s is initiating their mother to go talk to Jesus about seats at the marriage supper in heaven, right? My mom's not going to talk to my master. Hey, listen, can my son sit at your left hand? And can my other son sit at your right hand? It is, it's an idea of what happens when they are younger. Builds a case for whether they're Younger Now, listen, you may not agree with me. I get that. Regardless of whether they're teenagers or not, it doesn't change the theological truth of the gospel. In fact, it enhances it if they are. Why? Because I think for so many years we have overlooked and looked over teenagers and the impact that teenagers can have for the kingdom of God. Right? Could it be that Jesus Christ took a bunch of boys and change the course of human history with teenagers, right? The other reason I want to bring this up is this. So often in the Christian life, we have the tendency to glamorize and idolize the apostles, right? Now, I'm not taking anything away from these men. Praise God for them. We honor their faithfulness. But we tend to idolize and glamorize them. I want you to know something about these men that Jesus called. They are no different than you or me, right? The only thing that was special about them is they had the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and they wielded the Word of God. Why? Because they spent three years with Him. One and a half to three years with Him, right? And so I want to submit to you today. These were average, ordinary men like us. What could God do with your life if you got serious with God? What could God do with your life like these men if you went all in for God? You could change the world. Why? Because that's what they're about to do. So we see the participants. They, there's nothing special about these men. Wow, you've been listening to Robbie Gallaty on unpacking what does it mean to really be a disciple that follows Jesus. And we're going to share the back half of that message in the next podcast, but maybe you'd like to know more about how to make disciples in the context of the local church, then go to disciplefirst.com. That's disciplefirst.com for your one-stop shop in disciple-making resources. Also, you can look to a Flashpoint conference. Maybe you can hear Robbie in person at the next Flashpoint conference coming to a city near you. And until then, go make disciples. Disciples.